welcome to the Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners podcast. You will hear about industry insights with award-winning financial planner and entrepreneur, Jason Pereira. Through the interviews with different experts with their stories and advice, you will learn how you can navigate the challenges of being an entrepreneur, plan for success, and make the most of your business and life. And now, your host, Jason Pereira. Hello and welcome, and thank you for joining me. One quick explanation, in case you have not noticed, this podcast has not aired in several weeks. That's simply because I have been super busy, and I have not been able to figure out my production schedule for the next couple of weeks, and I still have not. But I did manage to book today's guest well in advance, and uh, this is just a promise to you that I will be coming back on a weekly basis in early 2022. In the meantime, I hope you enjoyed today's interview. I have Rob Engen, fee-only financial planner and blogger at Boomer and Echo. Rob is a well-known voice in the Canadian financial blogosphere in that he's run a blog for 11 years as one of our recognized voices in Canadian online finance. I brought him on the show specifically today to talk about DIY investors and when they should seek out help, specifically trying to identify the points and issues that would make you go from a do-it-yourselfer to someone who needs the guidance of someone else. And with that, here's my interview with Rob. Rob, thank you for taking the time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Absolutely. So Rob, besides my introduction, tell us a little bit about who you are and what it is you do. Sure. I'm, uh, I live in Lethbridge, Alberta, and uh, I run the Boomer and Echo uh, personal finance blog and have since 2010. And uh, about six years ago, I started a fee-only financial planning service. And uh, so I just help out, I would say, kind of the regular people who are approaching those big burning financial stages of their lives whether they're at that early stage of joining their finances and getting married and having children or getting ready to retire and just wondering those, you know, those big questions about whether I have enough, how much can I spend, how long will it last and that sort of thing. Now, I brought you on the show specifically to talk about um, going, moving from DIY to advise or, or vice versa. And I think it's, we make for an interesting contrast in that you're dealing with a lot of what we'll call Main Street problems. This podcast in itself is targeted specifically at business owners with high complexity problems. And I think there's a big spectrum of what happens in between. And I often say, even with my fees, it's just like, look, if you're a T4 employee with a union pension and your house and you're paying down your mortgage at a regular reasonable rate, probably not a ton I can do for you, but there's stuff I can do, but I'm not sure if the value for money, a transition, a transaction is, is going to be fair. And I'm not built for that. Other options like yourself are. So let's talk about you for years. were a big DIY advocate that yourself. Tell me about to your experience. What are the more like common person triggers for someone even with a simple situation for the need to seek out advice in the first place? Well, a big one lately has been either my portfolio has gotten off kilter, right? With whether they're, you know, the stock component has uh, has really increased in value and they're just feeling really uh, some trepidation about the high valuations of stocks and the uncertainty of bonds. And so they're just maybe wanting a reset or a check-in on that asset mix and uh, whether to do um, to make any changes there. Another big trigger is uh, either an inheritance, so a large, a larger lump sum of money than they than they've typically known what to do with. And these larger lump sums could actually come in a in a in a couple different uh, scenarios that I see. Anyways, one is someone taking the commuted value of their uh, pension when they leave their work uh, workplace. They're not used to handling that much money and of course don't want to make any mistakes. So they're reaching out for advice. Another one, as I said, is an inheritance or maybe you sold a rental property or your primary residence and uh, are dealing with a lump sum of money now and just wanting to know the best uh, way to allocate it. But also, you know, as we know, it's not just about investing. There's a bigger picture at play there. And so just how that fits into the whole puzzle piece of their financial picture. 
Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because let's tackle the the investment portion of that first is that Michael Kitsis, um, financial planning guru in the US, likes to identify the market as being composed as, as delegators, validators, and do DIYers, right? DIYers, self-explanatory. Delegators are those who seek out full data, you know, delegative services like what I offer. And then you have the validators in the middle, which is, hey, I'm doing this myself. But I do want someone to make sure, like, just as, as just make sure I'm doing this right, right? So I don't want to give it to someone else, but I do want validation. So I mean, what you're describing there is is basically a lot of validate validators. Like, can is that the more common reason for approach? Is typically investment driven? Really uh, starts from that investment point of view, obviously. And, yeah. and so you know, when I work with them, we obviously go through the whole financial planning spectrum. But uh, typically, it does come from an investment burning question. And you're right; it's the validators. And I would also say, like, there's a a bit of inherent bias in the type of people who are seeking me out because, you know, not a lot of people know about fee only or fee for service financial planning. And so they typically have heard about me through uh, reading my blog and taught me talking about what I do and my own money philosophies and things like that. So they're already coming at it from with some knowledge that here's a problem that I can help them solve. And then just reading through some of uh, some of my work, they, you know, uh, something clicks with them that, oh, this, this uh, could be a good fit for me. So they reach out. They're not just blind to that this type of service even exists out there. Uh, so, so definitely in that validating, like I've been doing things this way, whether through uh, a kind of a bank mutual fund portfolio or on my own, but I, you know, I really need a second, a sober second thought here, a second set of eyes to, to make sure I'm on the right track. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, first off, uh, not knowing about family planners, there aren't a lot of Fleoni planning firms with their names on the side of arenas, right? So it's not surprising just the awareness isn't there. It's interesting you you mentioned that specifically that you know they're they're specifically self-selecting in because they're aware of your blog and they're they're aware of this kind of service through services like your blog. And I got into a debate, which I'm sure you saw on Twitter with another Fleoni advice only advocate or sorry, or DIY advocate who basically I at one point in an article said, look, I know it's selection bias, but the DIYers who've ever come to me, it was always a mess. And I think if anything, it's it's interesting because I can see our experiences being completely different in that people are jumping from a ploy, place of just, just really experimental gambling without education to, oh, boy, I really screwed this up. Let me go to a professional who can handle this for me versus what you have, which is, hey, I am doing it myself. I've researched it. I'm, I'm relatively comfortable, but now I have this event I'm not comfortable with. So I can totally see how our 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 personal experiences with DIYers coming, coming to us would be very, very different. I'm sure you probably see a lot more Vanguard balance portfolios than I do from, from, from uh, DIYers. Exactly. Some uh, either robo-advisor, very comfortable in that yep. environment, or, a, yep. or or an asset allocation ETF. Because I talk so much about passive investing, I get less you know dart-throwing stock pickers Mm. Um, so they tend to come to, you know, I've set up this, maybe I set up this coach potato portfolio, you know, seven years ago before these new kind of solutions have come on board. I don't really know if I'm doing it right now. So being aware of the other products that are on the, on the DIY spectrum is, uh, you know, is important as well. Well, it, it's funny too, because you've kind of solved the problem that exists for almost every other advisor in that, and I've, I'm, I'm attending a, a webinar, a, sub, a seminar on this today on value of advice and, and pricing and, and and basically explaining value. And where a lot of advisors struggle is in explaining their value to, to clients. And my typical response is, well, then maybe those aren't the clients you should be having. And maybe that service doesn't match up with them. Like you, it's, you know, you're drawing them in in a way that they know you're the person they want to deal with. I think my marketing does that with a s- certain segment of the market too, in that 
that, oh, this guy's specifically dealing with these issues. This is the person I want to speak to. And they see the value in advance. Whereas the average advisor just says, hey, I'm an advisor. I can help you. Well, that's a very abstract concept, right? And you can't really help everybody to the same degree. So fascinating that you kind of, your experience is so focused in that way. Well, I was going to say, Jason, one, one thing that I've really learned over, you know, as I started out, it was kind of like, oh, I got a new inquiry. Like, that's fantastic. And of course, I'm going to strive to help them to the best of my ability. And um, but sometimes it's just jamming a square peg in, in a round hole. And so what I've refined over the last couple of years is really that this is the type of client that I work with. This is the sweet spot, that retirement ready scenario that so you're and, and, and you're not you're not a, you know, zero hedge reading gold buried in the backyard inflation truther, <laughs> right? Where I, you're just not even going to take my advice, right? I mean, I yeah. manage your money. So, so really that's what I'm selling. And so, you know, that's refining yeah. kind of who my client is, is, is really important as well. That's funny. You figured out your niche with so many traditional advisors can't seem to do. And, you know, I guess when you don't put up, uh, you know, pictures of lighthouse and random, random generic terms to try to capture everybody in your website, you take a position, people who believe in that position are going to find you. So there's a marketing lesson for any advisor out there. And that's also a marketing lesson for any, any client seeking advice in that find someone who speaks your language both in their marketing, but specifically when they sit down with you. If they're just talking in general terms and can't tell you that they've dealt with cases exactly like yours, because, hey, the big joke, and I'm sure you've heard this before, and I say this all the time, is advisors will say, and I'm a little bit guilty of this on my website, but we go to more detail, is I deal with business owners, executives, and high net worth families. And my response is, oh, you deal with people with money. What services have you developed around each one of those three niches to basically differentiate yourself? And more, most advisors just look at me at the blank stare. So yeah, so make sure you're dealing with someone who's basically focused in understanding the true problems that that kind of person does. I mean, famously, there's a guy in the States whose niche is bass fishing champions, which sounds hilarious. But if you win one of those contests, here's a half million dollar check and a bunch of endorsement deals start rolling in. And maybe you never made real money in your life before. That's the kind of person that needs advice at the right time in the right place. So, right. Um, Perfect example well. of that niche. Exactly. So, I mean, we got in a little bit off track here, but let's talk about, so the investment driven piece, like, you know, that's your experience there. The you know, I find that's also a bit of a failing in that too much of this industry is always just about the investment stuff. And we don't really explain the value of proper planning to people, which I'm sure once they get involved in a process like yours or mine, they come to see that, but they have to experience it first. And the industry just does a terrible job of explaining itself on that front. Besides the investment piece, for the average Main Street person, talk to me about what are the triggering points where, let's say that they are following a blog like yours or or, or Bender's or whoever else is and basically doing their couch potato portfolio thing and, and they're socking away a good amount of money and they're doing all right. At what points or life events do you think trigger the need for them to get the second opinion from a fee-only planner? Well, usually I, I come back to either there's that there's that lump sum amount. So yeah. again, is something yeah. changed in there where it's 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 different than I'm socking away my 500 bucks a month or whatever it is? Yeah, uh, something has changed where they now have to deal with the stakes are a lot higher, and uh, you know, so you want to deal with that event and want to get that outside uh, voice. Uh, the other one comes from they're not a DIYer, but they uh, you know know enough about it that they're ready to take that plunge. And and for uh, usually for reasons to save on fees, like and I'm talking about a, a typical bank mutual fund advised yeah. uh, client want to save on there. fees, and so they just don't know because there's so much information, so many paths they can take, and they don't want to make any mistakes, and so mm-hmm. they would come to seek advice for that. And so those uh, those would be the two big triggers. One is kind of well, I want to save on fees, but I don't really know where to go. The other one is dealing with that lump sum. And then I want to say the third one, which I touched on earlier, is the uh, I, I've been doing this and I don't really know what I'm doing. 
right? I, I uh, was tried picking stocks and that went okay for a while, but then, you know, this particular one blew up. Hey, I used to be a dividend stock picker and uh, and experienced that with like 2015 oil stocks. You know, there's a couple of duds in my portfolio down 50%. Like I get it. So, and you had actual you know, proof to prove that that's not a thing, but continue. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> yeah. it's really like a check-in on like, I don't really know what I'm doing. I need to yeah. reset my portfolio. But, you know, I also have to deal with this legacy of, you know, maybe that's easy to do in my RSP and my TFSA, that registered account where, you know, I can easily flip the switch to a passive portfolio. But I've got this legacy non-registered account that, you know, yep. is filled with capital gains and losses. So I need a plan to deal with this. Yep. Excellent. Okay. So they come to you predominantly for the investment piece. You spend a bunch of time on the planning specifically in general, not just on the investment side. I'm sure you uncover countless other things. I mean, I know I always tell people, you know, they're like, well, what exactly are you going to do for me? I'm like, until you give me all the material, I don't know. Like that's the reality of it. I'm sure you must uncover all kinds of stuff that even with simple cases that people haven't even contemplated. Care to share some of those examples of things that go wrong that they're not even aware of? Like the unknown unknowns to people who are just focusing on investments? Yeah. I think just because there's so much information out there about the the, way, the right way to do things. And so I really like to bring things back to simplification and it may not be the most optimal way to design a portfolio, but if you kind of go back to the philosophy of, look, investing has been solved with low cost, broadly diversified, risk appropriate passive portfolios. And there's a couple of ways to get there, whether it's through an asset allocation ETF or individual ETFs or E-series funds or a robo-advisor, okay? Just figure out what kind of investor you are. But there's other things even deeper, which are, you know, the portfolio allocation. I think I read once I should have all my bonds in my RSP, right? And so- uh, Maybe but not. Then, but then things get, you know, you have contribution limits and you have, uh, you know, only my Canadian stuff should be in my TFSA and, and whatever. But things that look really nice on a spreadsheet suddenly go live and into the wild and there's contribution limits and there's uh, gains and losses and rebalancing that you need to deal with. And suddenly that is um, starting to get really unwieldy. And so again, it's that reset of like, okay, I thought I was doing the right thing by doing this, but now I've created this monster. Well, well, this is too often the problem in financial writing is that there's a, like, what's the one answer? People want one answer. And, and unfortunately, as you know, the answer is it depends. And, you know, your your example there was a perfect example. Well, almost a perfect example, but a perfect example of people go and say, okay, this is how you optimize around taxes and your investments. But that's still predicated on knowing rates of return and dividend distribution rates and all this other stuff where, okay, if that works according to your spreadsheet, great. But even a 1% deviation, expected return or volatility in some of those things, and suddenly you get a completely different answer. And this is, you know, there's a reason why that robo-advisors haven't mastered this yet with all the computer technology they have. It's because there's a lot of other things beyond the simple concept of just you pay less tax in this one than you do in that one. So the answer in most cases is, well, that actually doesn't work very well without predictive knowledge. And you know, I get I get the same frustration around things like advice on CPP, where everyone's saying, oh, no, absolutely, you should absolutely take it at 70 because the highest payout. It's like, well, but there's cases where that wouldn't be the case, right? So, and, and you know, whether it be, and everybody goes to longevity first, but there's also income gaps prior to that. There's There's any number of situations that until you actually model it out, you're like, okay, this is actually suboptimal. So there is no magic bullet or golden ticket in this industry. Like everything is dependent on you as the unique snowflake and that's it. So those are interesting ones. Let's talk about, you know, the opposite of the spectrum. As I said before, you know, there's there's obvious levels of complexity where people are have complex businesses or cross or basically American citizens and they have tax filing requirements maybe they didn't even know about. Those ones, you know, there's a lot of value to be added. So I think to my general 
philosophy on this is basically said has been, look, the problem with this industry is it should be about informed consent and it's not. What you just described as methods for investing your money, make on your, your own basis and doing so at a low cost. Great. You know, those are those are there. If you're going to pay a delta for that, you should be getting some sort of service. Now, maybe you're the kind of person who would rather just have someone invest your money for it and you're paying a delta for that. That's fine as long as it's informed. But when people don't know those options exist, that's a problem. And also when people don't get a lot of value for the extra 50 to 75 basis points they're paying to an advisor, maybe even 1%, then the question becomes, what's the point? Are you getting full comprehensive service? So that's a challenge. So I think Leo, in, your, in terms of your situation, so when would you, have you had a lot of people come to you or many people come to you where you're like, okay, your, your situation's beyond my level of comfort. Uh, your complexity is beyond that of a normal DIYer. And how do those conversations go? Well, absolutely I do. And I, when I talk about, you know, finding the right client fit for me, mm-hmm. I'm very upfront about the type of situations I deal with. And so if you, you know, you're a U.S. citizen and, uh, or you're a, you've got a medical corporation or you are just in a, you know, you're dealing with family trusts and, and more, yeah. just more complicated situations, frankly, uh, it's, you'll be better served in either, you know, a model like you offer, or there's even bigger fee only financial planning firms out there that have, mm-hmm. I'm, one person that works, you know, out of my home and there's bigger firms out there that have expertise on dual citizens and uh, trusts and things like that and or divorce. And so just for me, it's just being aware of those and, and passing them along. And usually it's, it's a, uh, you know, talk about what the reaction is. It's, it's a appreciation because I'm recognizing that, look, I'm not the best fit for you. And I'm pointing them in a direction where, you know, they can go and reach out and get the help that they actually need. One of the challenges I want to mention though, is in, especially early on, when it comes to fees and pricing yourself, is that initially I was maybe on the lower end of the fee spectrum. And if someone is strictly fee shopping, they could have the most complicated situation in the world. You know, here's a doctor with an $8 million net worth, and they're seeking out the lowest cost fee only financial planner to help them. And it's just such a mismatch that I could not give the type of service they need, but they're they're seeking it out because it's it's the lowest cost situation. So there's just a total kind of dislocation of our expectations. I have a a pending article about uh, the industry's poor job of marketing services beyond just investment implementation and how that's actually hindered the entire industry for a long time. Because like you get those situations right there. It's like when you let's just imagine that case had like four or five million dollars involved in it. Right. The delta on a mistake is just so bloody huge. And if you if you're haggling because you think it should you should be paying more than fifteen hundred dollars for something like I don't know what to tell you. I really don't know what to tell you because the uh, that's that's a big one. But you're yeah. I think you hit upon another key point, and it's almost like this is almost becoming a practice management conversation for advisors. And again, a word of caution for for people who are shopping for advisors is this was largely covered also with my in my interview with uh, John Degui. It's it should be a two way interview every time you sit down with a new prospect. What is it that that person needs? Can I provide value? And I always talk in my conversations with like, listen, the goal today is to point you in the right direction. That might be my firm. It might be someone I know. But at the end of the day, I want to point you in the direction of whomever is going to service you best. And sometimes that is a, hey, I don't want, I want to manage my money. I don't want anyone else touching it. Or I only want a feeling engagement or thresholds of investment are too low or levels of complexity are actually outside my comfort zone, which yes, that does exist. <laughs> the reality is I do a lot. I think I refer probably to about 
66 to 75 percent of all prospects that come in the door because it's not a fit. And that's yeah. why I want to highlight is that it is exactly that two-way street. But I think what's really important is putting your uh, message out there in such a transparent way. So everyone who comes to my website knows the fees. They know the yes. type of clients that I deal with. They know the uh, level of service they're going to get. And so just by reaching out there, uh, hopefully that their level of understanding yeah. is that I think this is going to be a good fit. Now we do the interview. Yeah. Can I actually help yeah. you? Does this click? I will say, unfortunately, some dealerships do not will not permit fees to be published. I had this argument sure. previously, and that's gonna I'm gonna win that fight. Next website update. Uh -huh. But the point is, is that so that's an issue. But I mean, the ability to at least when you meet with them transparently explain down to the letter, you know, down to the whatever number of digits exactly what you'd be paying and what you'd be getting in return. That is that is vitally important. So yeah, that level of transparency, whether it be on the website or after, is 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 hugely valuable. But I mean, I'll tell you the um, you know whenever I get an email that says how much do you charge? No, sorry. How much do you charge for a plan? It's like, this is the wrong way to start a conversation. Like here's the range. But if you want to know why I charge that, that is a separate, more important conversation. So this is, as I like to say, we're not buying a toaster here. This is not some sort of blind commodity. And I think I have a real issue with the concept of a plan as a product. There are some people where we're just buying a one-off plan and going to their own devices and basically following that plan because maybe they have the ability to follow that plan will work perfectly fine. But the majority of them, to my experience, like they need someone to coach them through that process and get things done. I thought of one more example. If we swing back to DIY investing By all means. Uh, and a, um, a typical one that I've been dealing with now is uh, oftentimes, I'm sure you know this, that there's been one, let's say, chief financial officer of the household and yes. your spouse ha has or wants nothing to, to do with the whole process. And if that person is uh, the in, is the investor, and okay, well, let's just call it, let's let's call it out, and it's usually the, the male of the relationship. Gender um, dynamics being what they are, unfortunately, yes. Yeah, and in a lot of cases, uh, an older male. Okay, mm -hmm. so now we've got, we've got the older male dealing with all the investing and building this crazy portfolio of, of stocks and ETFs and, and whatever they're doing. What happens if they predecease their spouse? And so this case of like, they're so fixated on saving the fees on paying an advisor to manage this for them, that they've DIY'd this whole portfolio. But what happens if they don't have the mental capacity or expire before their partner does? What do they do? The worst thing they want, or the, the thing that they don't want, what I've understood, is that they don't want their spouse to go and walk into the big bank and hand it over to the mutual fund portfolio. So I say, well, you need this plan. Like you need a plan to say, what am I going to do? And if your wife's not, if your spouse is not a DIYer and is a delegator, like this is, I've, I've have clients where that's been the case where it's basically like, look, I think I was doing fine before and maybe they were okay. But the reality is, is that I'm 70 something years old. My spouse has never wanted to touch this. I need to know she's going to be okay. And waiting until telling, simply saying, go there when I die, frankly, is not good enough because no. like, that's the worst possible time to try to transition something. Exactly. Yeah. So right. I wanted to mention that one because that's becoming yeah. more and more, it's something I, I need to pass on to those types of clients where I yeah. see that situation. And it's one of those things where you don't, you don't know, unless you, someone's pointed it out to you like, Oh yeah. What yeah. will I do in that case? Yeah. And even, even in the advised world, it's still one of the number one reasons that people lose clients is that you didn't engage the spouse. Right. The spouse that was engaged died. The other person felt they weren't heard. But I will say it is a challenge because, and I've seen this on both genders. One person is very responsibly involved. The other person just wants to leave it to the other person. But you can still have a 
very, you don't have to have the relationship at the same level. There's plenty of spouses. And again, I will say I've had them in both genders where even if one spouse is handling all the numbers and the math and holding me accountable to all that, that's fine. But the other one, I still have a dialogue with, and I still just find a way to talk on their level because at least when something goes wrong with the person who's the person running it, and then they become a delegator, suddenly so it's a household. You basically have the ability to, you have an existing relationship where, okay, I built up trust with this person and they know that I have the ability to then take the delegative authority. So it's, um, life happens, right? <laughs> That's what it comes down to. Absolutely. So overall, and I'm going to, you know, I did dedicated a full episode of this previously. We also co- covered a little bit what to look for when selecting someone. Any kind of, before we close up, any kind of final words on exactly if someone decides to go back to the final words part, any final words on essentially when you have the life event that makes you decide that you want to get advice, whether, and sometimes it's not a life event. Sometimes it's just like, oh, my portfolio's gotten to this. Now the stakes are higher, right? Whatever it is, right? When, when you decide to go from DIY to an advised model, you know, what, what do you look for? What should you be looking for besides the examples we just gave on, you know, two-way communication of value and, and transparency? Well, I like the, I like how you put it when, when you're looking for someone who, you know, you understand, you speak, speaks your language, like someone mm-hmm. you can really connect with when there's just so like, there's so many advisors out there that have uh, planted their flag and so who connects with you. So you're looking for referrals, you're looking for just someone that at least can understand where you're where you're coming from. And typically you're going to have the, at least the background to say like, this is getting too big for me to manage. That's why I'm coming to you. And so, but you still have those ingrained like beliefs on how it should be done. And I think for the DIYer, that's the big struggle is letting go. And so as long as the portfolio itself, again, if we go back to the, the investing is the one is one component of that financial plan. And so at least if we're speaking the same philosophy on, you know, this is the type of, uh, of advisor you are, whether you're like, a, you know, dimensional factor funds, or you are, you know, investing in low cost ETFs, as long as we're on the same page there, I know where you can add value in other ways that I am just not privy to uh, on the whole financial planning, tax awareness and estate planning and all that, you know, so it's just got, as long as maybe those investing philosophies align, it's not someone trying to sell you their secret uh, sauce or their, you know, something in a black box that is not transparent. You know, yeah. I think that's a key is just, like, it's open, it's transparent yeah. about what they're going to be doing with your money so that you can now move on to the other important factors. Yeah. The first thing they're promising you is return or try to sell you a whole life policy. Those are usually Run away. Biggest yeah. rich. Run away as fast as humanly possible, especially if they can't clearly. I mean, I, I, some of the stories I have of prospects we've won in the past were like, oh, well, the other guys just sat there listening to me talk for five minutes and then pulled the sheet out of the briefcase and said, this is what I would put you in. And don't worry, I can change it if you don't like it. It's like, oh, so the solution was just magically in your, in your, your briefcase the entire time. And five minutes is all it took for discovery. That is that is remarkable. That's a magic briefcase. Those types of behaviors for people who don't listen and people can't show their work. Absolutely. You have to watch out for that. I will also caution uh, listeners that everyone in this industry seems to claim that they do comprehensive financial planning now. I think the number one question to ask is how many clients do you have? Because for those of us who do it, I mean, Rob, I mean, you're doing fee-only planning. How many how many engagements would you say you do in the average year at this point? Say maybe 80 would be the, yeah. the top end of that. And you know what's what's interesting is that that's kind of in, based on U.S. research. Sixty to one hundred is is the range for number of engagements on a planning level that you can actually have, maintain in the course of a year. So if you're a fee only planner, getting through eighty engagements a year is roughly around the number of fee based 
households that someone can deal with. So if the number is closer to the Canadian average of 300, you know, with basic math, they're not telling the truth, right? There's just no way if they don't have three to four client facing advisors on their team who handle the implementation, they're not telling the truth. So, oh, and, you know, make- and, and just, and, and that's for on the client, on the client end for interviewing the advisor. That's, that's incredibly key, but going back yeah. to kind of the more practice management side of things, you know, fee only planning is not really something you can scale, right? It's every, every situation is different. Ah. You're digging into all that. So I don't want to uh, spend a hundred hours a week doing this either. So I've planned my life in a way that I only take yeah. on a couple of new clients as I can spread them out throughout the year so that I can dedicate my time to the clients that I'm already uh, serving. Well, you, you nailed it right there in the head. It's interesting. Um, I mean, combination of factors. One, when I hear people in technology talk about, and this will allow advisors to service more clients and like, what do you think advisors do, right? If I'm selling, you know, investments scale to infinity, right? Because I mean, robo advisors have thousands of clients per rep because it's only putting out fires when they come up or when people inbound calling, but to be proactively involved in someone's life, that does not scale. So absolutely not. So I always laugh. I'm like, you guys have no idea what you're talking about. If anything, it's going to free up my time to do more for those same group of people. And the second piece of that is the simple fact that based on, yeah, and I'll go to US research because this is where they're they're more ahead of us on this. You know, the average financial planning engagement in the US takes over 10 hours just for the financial planning portion. So you can't simple math. It's simple math. Simple math, right? Hours like, the day. I, exactly. And I've seen I've seen technology that will shorten that, but how much is it going to shorten it too? Right. And that like that's the reality. So the reality is the number of hours in the day, number of hours in the year, you can't just do the math. Someone's got 300 households subtract how many working days are there in the year? It's under 300, right? right? Whatever. No, it's like camera what it is, but it's probably under 300. But the, the point is, is that just do the math on how much time you have to spend on your individual case. And you'll find you're dealing with someone who's selling a commodity priced as a premium experience. And that's just not a winning recipe. And what are you going to do when March 2020 happens and the phones are ringing off the hook, right? Like you're well, just digging yourself a huge hole. Well, that, well, that's the thing is that you know, characteristically, the most common thing that's said is I had to hide under my table because of the phone calls, right? Like I hear that and I'm thinking to myself, oh, so getting paid for, for basically stewarding people through the downside, which you said you would do is not a thing you do. Interesting. But I mean, I say two things. A, someone who's properly contemplating clients' risk tolerance and goals and everything and, and putting in place financial plans, they're not going to be inundated with calls. I was not inundated with calls on right, in, in March. Panicking. I had two panic calls. I think the firm on 235 households had five panic phone calls. And these are just people where that's their level, that's their personality. Fine. Yes. But as for the rest of it, the other flip it around, we were proactive in the phone calls, specifically going to every client over the course of the next month and covering everyone and just having a conversation about how this was impacting them. And you can't do that with 300 households per advisor. Just not a chance. Not a not chance. A chance. Right. So I think, you know, the message I'll give on DIY versus advised is someone wrote this previously, like the cost of investment implementation is 25 to 50 basis points. That's a robo advisor. Right. Cost for an advisor is probably on average, at least 1% on the first million or whatever it works out to be. What are you getting for that 50 to 75 basis points in Delta? Right. And I think there's lots that can be done to earn that, but not for everybody. And where that's not the case, then fee only planners and that, that, that kind of engagement that doesn't have to be ongoing or doesn't necessitate ongoing is a, is a great option. Yeah, I totally agree. You know, you, you, the 1%, you can earn your salt uh, quite easily in the whole spectrum of financial planning. And, you know, I think we talked about this before we went live, but there's that type of ongoing implementation where, you know, not only is someone dealing with a, a significant sum of money, 
but they just don't have the time or desire to, right? And so, you know, yes, I want a professional who agrees with my philosophies and and uh, and I trust what they're doing, but I don't want to do the day-to-day implementation. And okay. so that's an absolute case to hire that out to a full service advisor. Excellent. So yeah, so I think at the end of this conversation, there's a gray area where, where you're okay if certain checkboxes are hit on one side and there's another area on the other end of the spectrum, you have the absolute need for full-on continuous advice. And then there's this big, like I said, gray area in the middle where depending on the person's situation, it goes from one to the other. I mean, I'm sure you've come across cases where you said, nope, you're doing everything right and you're good to go. Again, self-selection bias. I don't get a lot of those, right? I get a lot of complexity where there's something somewhere that basically I wasn't there, but I do believe that there are people out there doing the right job on their own. And in that validator uh, model, as you said, it's, um, you know, they are doing the right things and they, but they want that sober second thought, that second set of eyes to just walk them through and make sure that there's no uh, holes to poke through the plan. Yeah. A question for you too, before we wrap up on that one, do you get much resistance when you poke something out? Like, I mean, I'll give you some examples of the DIYers who rarely come across my table. Like in this case, it's like, they'll be hundred percent Canadian stock because it's hundred percent Canadian dividends. That's all they really want. No consideration for risk tolerance, but like they'll talk about how they almost want to jump off a building with a market correction. And it's like, if that's your line of thinking, something's wrong. Right. And Anyway, I mean, I've had the hardest time with those people ever tell for them to ever believe anything they're doing is wrong. Your case, how receptive are people to this form of constructive criticism? Again, because of self-selection, they're pretty receptive because we already have that kind of rapport going into it. But there are some, certainly some preconceived or hardwired notions uh, that, you know, I'm doing things this way because and just pointing out the evidence around whether it's, you know, investing a lump sum immediately or, uh-huh. you know, the research around CPP and, and deferral, or I'm convinced that I'm going to take the commuted value of this pension and uh, and invest the money. Well, have you done the math and the, and the kind of the checklist on why you might want to take the, take the monthly pension? Let's do that because unless we, unless we do it, you're, you know, you're just, you're convincing yourself that uh, this is the solution when it might not be. Yeah. And how much of what you read online was was by people who basically only profit if you take their if you take the commuted value and, and then invest it for? It. I mean, like talk about exactly massive conflicts of interest in that space, man. It's it's nuts. So yeah, it's interesting. I think again, it goes back to and again, clients don't agree with everything I tell them to do, and I don't fire them for it. It comes down to informed consent. You want to do something. Here's what this is. This is suboptimal for the following reasons. If you don't want to listen, you're fine to not listen because whatever reason that you feel you want to do but you've been informed, right? Like it's, it's, there doesn't have to be a beat them over the head with it. I mean, tough love is important when they're not going to get to the finish line if they keep doing that. But if it's not going to hurt them and they're going to be suboptimal because they want to be. I think it's hard and it's harder where I'm coming from because I'm just advising. And if they just don't believe it, they're not, of course, going to listen to that advice and do it. So they're going to do things a certain way. And then they might come back to me and go, well, didn't you tell me this? And uh, I've been doing it this way, but why did you tell me that again? And I'll explain it. And I had a perfect example of someone who Canadian dividend focused DIY or long legacy portfolio. And he emailed me and said, Rob, something finally clicked. I had a breakthrough. This isn't, oh, it was, yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, I thought I was getting this Canadian dividend income as super tax efficient income, but it was when I was in a period of low income when I had just retired. And now that I'm adding my RIFs, and my CPP and my OAS, it's suddenly the math doesn't really work the out. Is is, in. 
Yeah, exactly. So he had a breakthrough and it took two, yeah. it was two full years. And so, you know, they uh, sometimes get it eventually. I always find dividends an interesting one in Canada for the mental accounting bias of you're not, yeah, it's cheaper because the tax, some taxes were paid by the corp. But at the end of the day, when you add the total tax bill, there really wasn't a savings and capital gains are so much more efficient. Right. <laughs> it's, it's nuts is what it is. Yeah. Yeah, we were talking about that one on Twitter the other day. That was funny. Anyway, so this has been great. I think if anything, we didn't come up with a definitive checklist as to why you do this. And I frankly, because I don't think there is one, right? I think it's it's case specific, right? So I think if anything, if there's a question of whether or not you should be doing it, you should be reaching out to people who can have a sincere conversation and not just try to sell you the second you get in the door. So that could be me, that could be Rob, that could be many of people in our networks. But I think the message well, is- certainly, again, yeah, like certainly at some point in your life, that little voice in your head is going to go, am I doing the right thing? Yeah. Whatever that situation is, if yeah. that if that little voice is telling you that, uh, maybe it's time to reach out and just at least get get the conversation started with an advisor and, and see where that can add to add some value for you. And I would also say the one piece I'll add to that, not just for me, but for the people in my family, because I see this all the time, and I'm sure you've seen it too. One spouse is super risk averse and will basically just has no problem with putting it all on GameStop or whatever it is. And the other spouse is completely the opposite. It's almost a dynamic in my house, but not quite that, <laughs> that quite risk averse. And it becomes, that's a financial conflict is a big reason for divorce. So if you- I didn't picture you as a meme stock investor, Jason. I'm not a meme stock investor, but my <laughs> wife, uh, you know, when my wife filled out her risk tolerance questionnaire, my response was, are you 90? Yeah. So point being that it's, it's can be a major, so it's not just yourself that's doing the right thing, is are you doing the right thing for your family? Is there a middle ground where you can both be happy and basically make sure that what you're doing is going to take care of not just you, but them? Yeah, that's a great point because, you know, that you often- I talk about that chief financial officer and they're DIYing both spouses accounts. And yeah. maybe that, maybe that spouse is kind of ears perked up or eyebrows raised and go, what yeah. are you doing now? That uh, goes well. We until should it seek does a second it. opinion. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That, that goes well. With the, those, and I'll tell you the risk averse spouses tend to anchor very heavily on what the highest portfolio value was. So it's like, yeah. they don't care from, you know, 50 grand to 500,000, they know that the spouse took them from 500,000 down to 300,000. And that's a problem, right? Like, <laughs> so exactly. is what it is. Excellent. Rob, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? You can find me at boomerandecho.com. And you know, that's where my blog is. And you can read about my fee for service, uh, fee only advising. Excellent. So that was this week's episode of Financial Planning for Canadian Business Owners. Again, there's no definitive checklist. As always, it depends. If you're listening to this podcast because you're a successful business owner and you have a lot of different corporations or structures in place, guess what? You're definitely on the advised side. You're not on the DIY side anymore. If you are someone who's a T4 employee listening to this and basically put socks away their normal routine money into a robo-advisor, you know what? A pulse check with someone like Rob is definitely a value, but probably doesn't necessitate a full-blown engagement like myself. So figure out where you belong, listen to people who know what they're doing, make sure you find the right advice. And until next time, take care. This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals, business owners, and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, and Spotify, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca. You can even ask Surrey, Alexa, or Google Home to subscribe for you. 